Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today Dan White Jr. Uh, Dan White and his wife, Tanya, they run the Conejo uh, Renewal and Retreat Retreat Center in Puerto Rico. And Dan has been a church planning strategist with the V3 movement for quite some time now. He also co-founded Praxis, the Praxis Gathering, a yearly conference that equips practitioners in the hands and work of following Jesus deeper into our local places. Most famously, uh, Dan was on the Theology in a Row podcast a few couple of years ago, I think. And I remember in that episode, I still remember that episode where Dan talked about and maybe even coined the phrase, the church industrial complex, and talked about how he had been engaging in the church industrial complex for quite some time, and it led him to a season of burnout and just rethinking what it means to uh, be the body of Christ. And so Dan is one of those guys that I think has a lot of great wisdom that comes from not just thinking and reading, but a lot of experience on what it means to be the church. And so he has a lot of uh, maybe different ideas of what the church should be and look like. And so I love talking to Dan about how to think and rethink church, especially in what we are now in, you know, this post-COVID world. And Dan is just a super thoughtful guy. You're going to enjoy this conversation. If you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology Raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. Get access to Patreon-only Q&A podcasts, blogs, where I spout off my um, thoughts once a month to my Patreon-only audience. So again, all the inform- all the information is in the show notes if you would like to support the show. Also, if you uh, have enjoyed the show and would like to leave a review, I highly encourage you to do so. It really does help people find out about the podcast when people leave reviews. And also, please consider sharing this episode and others that you have appreciated on your social media platforms. All right, folks, without further ado, let's get to know the one and only Dan White Jr. Hey, welcome back to Theology in the Raw with Dan White Jr. Dan, thanks for being uh, a returning guest on Theology in the Raw. Preston, thank you. It's good to be with you. So for those who, uh, I think it's been a couple years maybe, so for those who don't know who you are, why don't you just give give us a quick catch up, get us up to speed, and I want to jump into this whole post-COVID world that we're living in because I think you're you're just the type of person that I think you understand the intersection between church culture and also, I don't know if you would use this phrase about yourself, but almost like a bit of a futurist, not in the weird way, (laughs) but in just like, I feel like you have this ability to kind of foresee through a church lens kind of what's Mm. coming. I don't know. I don't know if you would even describe yourself that way, but when I read you and listen to you, I I get that sense. But Mm. who is, who is uh, Dan White Jr.? <laughs> uh, well, he's had a, too too many cups of coffee at this point, uh, so he's a he's a little amped up. Um, you know, uh, I've been working with uh, I've been a pastor for twenty plus years, local church pastor and planter in mega churches, in small missional uh, type churches, and for the last uh, seven years, I think it is now, I've been working with the V three movement, and the V three movement. Um, helps start and sustain movemental churches. And when I say movemental, I mean discipleship-centered, multiplying mid-sized communities 
in it, that focus on particular issues and places in a neighborhood. And so I've been, uh, I helped build that with J.R. Woodward and we've been running cohorts for, I don't know, a few hundred uh, planters have gone through that training. Mm-hmm. And so that's really my sweet spot. I love, I love the, uh, the possibilities of breaking open space for uh, a new community in a neighborhood. And so I've been doing that. And then uh, I've written a few books. My recent one is Love Over Fear, uh, which is about the polarization in Christian communities around the progressive conservative divide. And you can take a look at that if you get a chance. But my recent like uh, significant shift in my life has been I moved to Puerto Rico uh, about a year ago to start the Caneo Center, uh, which is a place of healing for wounded and weary leaders. My wife and I have bought an old uh, hotel and many wow. resort uh, with the help of many uh, denominational organizational partners that come around this. And it's a, a training ground development space for pastors who are flaming out, burning out, lashing out, hiding out uh, because of the work of local church work. So it's a, it's a new season for me and my wife, but we're really excited. God has drawn us into this work. Why, uh, and that, that Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, why, why Puerto Rico? Well, I had a significant uh, meltdown uh, four years ago. Uh, I had a physical ailment that showed up in my body because of uh, burnout in local, being a local pastor. And I came to Puerto Rico for a season as a sabbatical, and this is actually where I encountered God and some level of healing and self-awareness. And so later, years later, when we were considering our next uh, shift in ministry, you know, Puerto Rico just came back to mind because it was the ground of healing for us. And uh, plus, it's beautiful here. It's it's exotic. It's beautiful. Um, it's a mashup of cultures with with those who uh, are speak English and those who don't and speak Spanish. And uh, it, it's just a beautiful uh, space. And it's a raw space, using your language from your podcast. It's it's not a highly developed island, which is what I love. It's very uh, beautiful. The culture is still uh, very present. And so when we were considering uh, a space for leaders to get away, uh, you know, that's where Puerto Rico kind of came into the picture. So, And you, I'm, yeah, we can just, I, I had so many other questions I wanted to lead with, but I just, just so we can sure uh, round this out. So um, leaders, would they, is it, is it, do they pay? Is it funded? How long do they come for? Are you involved with their Sure. Rest and pouring into them, or is it just, hey, come mm. and hang out, and if you need me, I'm here. If not, we don't need to see each other. What's the give us the right. elevator pitch? Yeah, we have we have a few different pathways for entering, but I'd say the 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 primary path for entering into Caneo is our 24 week cohort, which launches at the end of the year. And so you'll if you apply to be part of Caneo, you'll be partnered with six to eight other uh, leaders with a coach. And online, you'll walk through this uh, this renewal process of looking at your injuries and injustices and your wounds and your ego. Mm. And then it culminates what we call the crescendo with five days here at the Caneo Center mm. with a coach, with a therapist, and with my wife and I and your, and your cohort. 
that's the primary uh, way we're addressing this problem. But we also have uh, personal retreats and group retreats. And actually, we, we haven't even formally opened and we're booked for the entire summer oh, wow. uh, with people who are coming for a personal treat, like a hybrid vacation, but also uh, three or four sessions with Tanya and I to work through pain and possibilities. Like, where's your acute pain in your life and what are the possibilities of resurrection? So, um, and then we have group retreats that are, are you know, bring people bringing a whole team or coming with their friends and uh, addressing their the wounds in their life and the weariness that's mm. taken over. Uh, you know, for most of the day, they'll enjoy uh, the pool and the beaches and the setting and have a lot of quiet time, but there will be a few sessions scattered throughout to uh, work through that part of your life. So now you those are you, really the three pathways. Yeah, you, you, Bert, you said you, had, you hit the wall four years ago, but you left the mega church or so for my audience, they might remember this phrase. I got it from you. I mm. think I've used it a few times. I try to credit. I think I've credited you. The church industrial complex. It's such a brilliant phrase. <laughs> I remember that was. I remember. Sure. I still remember. I still have people say that podcast of Dan White Jr. Church industrial complex just captured mm. so much of what I think a lot of pastors are in with this kind of mega church. Whatever. All that to say, my question is. Yeah. That was like seven years ago when you left that. I was expecting your kind of burnout to be in the wake of that, but you said four years ago. What Can you unpack a little bit what happened four years ago? Certainly. Sure. So I, I just for a kind of timeline's sake, I left that mega church. I had a significant pivot and shift and deconstruction around ecclesiology 11 years ago. So that mega church departure was 11 years ago. Um, and then... Uh, I, you know, planted a missional church that multiplied, and my inner life uh, had a significant burnout uh, four years ago. So I was about eight years into that plant and started to, uh, well, what happened was I was diagnosed with CTSD, which is Cumulative Traumatic Stress Disorder. I'm not a ther- I mean, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a professional. It was a shocking, uh, um, uh, you know, to hear that from my physician and, um, and a neurologist. And it, the reason it was discovered was because my hands wouldn't stop shaking, and um, it, we thought it was um, Parkinson's for a little while. Um, but my hands just tremored, and it was because I was um, really responding to the stresses and rejection and abandonment and betrayal and loss that local pastors typically stuff under the carpet in their lives and it was coming out of my body and uh, so four years ago that was the first time I started to pay attention to how uh, hurt and sad and lonely I was and um, it still took me two years to feel like I had the freedom to step down from leading uh, our church um, I was in denial, actually. <laughs> I was fighting and resisting letting go. And it, it took my wife's prophetic voice to say, um, you can't do this any longer. You're going to kill yourself. So and uh, so that's that's the journey I've had. I've had two significant places. I don't know if this is normal, you know, for leaders to go. Th- it seems like every 10 years, um God wants to do a deeper work in my life and disrupts uh, something I'm attached to. So 
partly because my identity is attached to it. So, mm. so that's what, you know, that's what occurred uh, a few years ago. What, what, a for, for those who are kind of teetering on burnout and I've had a few yeah. in my season, one was a year ago, um, which led to mm. the first sabbatical I've taken in 20 years, yes. 20 years of, um, ministry. I mean, before that was nonstop school. Mm. And, um, and yes. I'm just like, man, I, I, I could see, a healthy a healthiness and taking a sabbatical like every two or three years, uh, which is probably, you know, the sure. there's a Southern Baptist seminary. I think it's, uh, I think the professors like every three years get a sabbatical every six years, get a full year off or something like that. Now it's a oh, writing, wow. like they're supposed to be writing and stuff, but sure. Uh, at first I was like, man, that seems like a lot, but I'm like, ah, oh, that, that's, yeah. that would might be a healthy pace. But what, um, for those who are maybe teetering on burnout, and you don't have to be a pastor; you could be just in life. Um, no. What right. What are uh, what What are your recommendations? I mean, is it just basically, yeah, take time off, or um, how do you cultivate? I guess there's kind of two questions: one, how do you recognize yeah. it, and then two, how do you cultivate healthy rhythms that prevent it from happening again and again and again? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> That's a deep dive to really unpack all that, but um, I do I do think that just resting is not enough to address burnout. Um, that's a part of it. Um, uh, I the interesting part is that in my own story, I had a pretty pretty strong rhythm of Sabbath and rest in my ministry life, and it was the unaddressed hurts and. Um, it's the it's the, it's that underworld in your life that goes unaddressed. You accumulate uh, over a period of time anger and bitterness and loss. And um, for me, uh, how I knew I was burning out was that first I had that physical ailment, but I started to hide out. I started to retreat from people and detach. Um, I don't know if you're in the Enneagram, but as an Enneagram five, I that's how I deal with. Uh, not being able to face reality is I start to uh, disappear. And um, for other people, they lash out and they start having anger issues and bullying. And for others, um, they just indulge in entertainment. And and so burnout shows itself differently in our personalities. Uh, it's all it's all ways of coping with uh, burnout. Is really I just can't carry on. I'm too exhausted. But we don't know why. Um, we just know we're tired. And so we find different ways of coping with that. So I would suggest anybody that's feeling, it's funny, I want to really wanted to talk about exhaustion post COVID, but a little later is when we're sensing we're exhausted, it's really a signpost or a signal that there's unaddressed hurt and loss and grief in your life. Hmm. Um, that hasn't really been unpacked. Okay. Um, it could be people that you've lost. It could be the loss of a dream. It could be the grief of uh, something that you thought you were going to be that you're not. Um, and so it's really it's really important to rest, but it's also really important to do that deeper work of unraveling that, mm-hmm. so that um, you're not just jumping back in um, with the same. Uh, underlying issues that you took or started taking the rest for. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's man. It's awesome that you have a that you've that you can see 
like, well, what I'm trying to say, that you're able to kind of self-analyze and, and pursue and be willing to get the help that you need. Because I think a lot of people, right, they just don't either recognize it or even if they do, they don't yeah. address it. They don't know how to address it. They don't want to address it. That's probably the majority, yes. of it, I would think. They're probably just yes, yes. slugging through life, carrying all this with them. And, yes. man, um, yeah, I, I bet you probably have tons of stories. I mean, just through your own, through Conejo now. I mean, probably yeah. a lot of uh, versions of you that you're <laughs> seeing come come in, yeah. you know. Um, so true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, burnout is is happening across the board. It's happening with pastors and planters as well as congregants. It's There's an existential exhaustion mm-hmm. that we're collectively experiencing, but we don't we don't know why. So, like, I, I I have conversations with megachurch pastors. I have conversations with small church pastors. I have congregations with people who just served in the church. And everybody is saying the same thing behind closed doors. Um, they're tired. They're weary. They don't know if they want to keep applying energy yeah. to whatever's in front of them. Huh. And... So I, I think COVID is revealing some of that. Um, yeah. So. Well, that's, that, that's a good segue to the COVID. I, I was going to ask the question, and this is related, I think, but how much of that's due to social media or the internet? Like, I just, I think of my life pre-internet, or at least pre-like mm. tied to the internet. Not, you know, obviously it's been around for a while. <laughs> um, but even like sure. back in, I, th- I think of like, Let's see, my seminary PhD day. So we're talking like 2000 to 2007. Okay, so the internet's around. Yes. Email's around, but it's, you know, social media's not really around yet. And I just felt like I'd wake up. I would, like, during my studies, I would just study. I could focus, like, I would be in a book for, like, four hours and wouldn't look up. You know, I'd be, like, typing, taking notes, doing research, and then take a quick break for lunch, go back, and da-da-da. There was no, I don't know, it just seemed... It just seemed different. Yeah. I, I just wonder. There's obvi- there obviously the profound distractedness of yes. having your phone and internet, but even the stress. And I think this is where COVID or all of 2020 between politics and r- the race stuff flaring up and COVID. Yes. And yes. just waking up every morning. And wondering if the world is still here. Just that stress, and then another riot breaks out, and yes. this, and another shooting, and yes, yes, all of that. You're you're just absorb. Well, I, mean, I guess that's a question, really. Are yeah. we absorbing so yeah. much more through the internet that we just didn't before? <laughs> like, if you just live an embodied local yeah. life and fight the injustices yes. in your neighborhood and your city, and pay attention to your neighbors and your community, and you're not absorbing all of this stuff out there. I don't know. Is that, is that, do you yes. think that's causing yes. it's part of the massive stress? Yeah. I mean, sure. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Sherry Turkle's work. Um, I have not read it. She it's does been a lot on of my book around. list. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. Her alone together and her recent book, reclaiming conversation. She does a lot of work around neurology and the psychology of how technology is depleting us and rewiring our brains. And, uh, and, and part of it is because our brains are not conditioned to constantly be captivated by uh, stimulants, constantly having to have our attention mm. grabbed. And 
um, there's no rest in our brain. We're not, we're not able to relax. We're not able to not have our attention grabbed. And so uh, 24-7 News, Twitter, Facebook is constantly fighting for our attention and we're submitting to it. We're giving it uh, away. And so we're unable to actually recover um, specifically in our prefrontal cortex a sense of uh, contentment or centering. Um, there, it's just it's buzzing all the time. And so that's exhausting um, just on a real blue collar level to just constantly be someone appealing to your attention. Look at me. See this. There's a problem in the world. Uh, you're not doing enough about it. Um, can you believe so-and-so said this online today? You need to chime in about it. I mean, it's just all day long. And so our, our, we're, we're more connected to the, really to, uh, to our kind of a global world than our local world. And I think that's also creating some sense of destabilization in our character and, and how we feel. Uh, we we're not really living in our bodies. We're living more um, in our in this kind of cyber technological uh, embodied place. So Sherry Turkle's work really addresses that. Um, one of the things that she brought out, which I thought was the probably the most um, illuminating piece, is that with three plus hours online a day for an adult, not just for kids, this thing uh, called cocooning happening happens cocooning, she called it. And uh, it's showing that cocooning is this closing down of our prefrontal cortex, like a darkening or a, a tunnel. And this is what creates depression wow. and anxiety. And cocooning happens is when they observe people's brains that have uh, taken their own life, their brains had cocooned, um, where they have no sense of reality and everything closes in. If you can think about being in a cocoon, it, it closes in on you. And She's saying that the internet is actually changing our brains from more cocooning. And so I think that we're going to have a, uh, I don't know, just a, a harvest of depression and, um, and people unable to kind of find reality and stabilization because of how much we're consuming uh, online. And, you know, and I am online, so this is not just a, you know, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not acting, I'm trying not to act Amish here and just say, get, get rid of everything. But I don't think that we have a good um, handle on the information age and how much consumption is affecting our ability to find peace and rest and recover. We don't have any recovery time. So, mm -hmm. um, so. I, gosh, well, that, I mean, do you, do you feel like this is, that seems like such a pervasive and profound yeah. problem. Do you feel like it's being addressed with the by, by the church as aggressively or s urgently as it should? Because I mean, if you think about what you said, if you are online for three hours a day, the adult average, and probably <coughs> most of us, if we're honest, are like it's probably more than that. That sure. you're like that if your brain is cocooning. So I'm just yeah. <laughs> brand new concept here. Sure, sure. But that that that's like, if your prefrontal cortex isn't functioning well, that's kind of a big deal. Like you can't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> as a as yes. a Homo sapien, so like yes. it seems like if this is a, yeah. this is, a problem, way more severe than like COVID or yeah. something. Or I mean, like 
where man, lots of people are being affected. Well, this is like everybody besides the Amish yeah. are going yeah. to be negatively impacted by this on some level, perhaps even profoundly yes. negatively impacted, severe yes. depression, suicidality, or even just, yeah, I don't know, indifference, apathy. And, and sometimes I feel that, yeah. you know, like where it's not, yeah. me, I don't, yeah, yeah. I'm not bent towards depression enough, but just that kind of just, just yeah. that, oh, just exhausted mentally. And not because yes. I studied all day, although that might be added to it, but it was just like, Man, I just yeah. when am I when I get to watch Netflix tonight? Because I'm just kind of spent, you know. Um, I'm glad you. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I, Preston, I think this, this is where this is the this is the sticky part. Is I think that the church has built some kind of like symbiotic relationship with technology or with any any medium that's going to deliver content or information. And so to help disciple people out of just constant consumption would actually shoot the church in the foot in a way. So the, this, this, I mean, this is what happened during COVID, uh, Preston, was when COVID hit, we saw so many churches pivot towards creating as much content as they could to deliver to their congregants. Mm-hmm. More sermons, more midweek pep talks, more produced worship services. I mean, just uh, I talked to a small church pastor, you know, has one staff and a laptop to a mega church that has a production team. And they all pivoted towards just having to create as much content as possible to get people through this hard time. Mm. And that's that is revealing kind of, I, I think, a broken relationship we have between you know the church and congregants there's there's this provider consumer dynamic relationship that has taken over and that's why that was our answer for covid for men i know there's exceptions i know there's exceptions but for most that was how we pivoted if we can get more content more information to people they'll be able to get through covid and we're exhausted from it it, it did not feed us it actually depleted us and pastors are burnt you know they've burnt themselves out over this last year i can't tell you how many leaders i've talked to are think who are just like as soon as this covid thing is completely over i'm out because they just became service providers and congregants have you know we're starting to see stats that 30 to 50 percent of people are not going to come back to their church and are not coming back and um even though they were given so much to consume, they did not feel attached to uh, their <laughs> local church. And so to critique technology and to start to, to discern how technology is shaping us for a disembodied life, how to start having some kind of tension and resistance around how much we consume, actually doesn't work in the favor of the modern church because that's how the modern church thinks it is. I think they think that's their bread and butter. Um, and I, I completely understand this part as a, as a leader and as a pastor, because I did this for 25 years. If I don't produce good stuff weekly, sermons, worship, Bible studies, uh, nobody is going to come. Nobody's going to like me. 
Nobody's going to stay and stick. Nobody's going to join me. That was working in my subconscious all the time. And if you think about that that dynamic, it's exhausting. (laughs) It's exhausting to live in that mentality. And I think it's unrewarding for people who want to be part of the church, for that to be the primary way they relate. And that's why I think COVID has lifted the lid. It's showing us that we... We're more transactional in our relationships than we were covenantal. We were more um, we were more fans than family, and I think it's the medium, the way that we have tried to um, relate with one another, is primarily through content delivery and then content consumption. No critique on your podcast, you know, because <laughs> you know that's a content delivery, but. Yeah. I, I just know so many pastors right now who are turning turning all their sermons into podcasts and. I just no wonder we're whipped. Um, what do you? Um, let's go back no to that. We're so tired. That's, that's it. If a pastor's listening, thinking like, yeah, it's exactly what we did. But what could we have done differently? Like, what if you were going to coach sure. people through that? What or you did coach people? Like, what instead of just delivering more content or the same content or more sermons or more whatever? Like, what could they have mm-hmm. done during COVID? Yeah, that's. I mean. I, how does I'm trying to figure out how to say this gently without, you know, um, throwing everyone under the bus. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I was I was honestly disappointed that that was the first pivot was to create more content rather than galvanizing people to teach themselves uh, to care for each other. Um, we I don't think we have the muscle there's a lot of atrophy around believing that Christians can teach each other <laughs> that they can get we helping them gather together rather than helping them come to us for gathering or come to us for correct teaching and doctrine. Um, so there are some exceptions. Again, there were some churches that pivoted towards, okay, let's, let's release the priesthood of believers here um, and move out of the way. Um, that's, I think that's where the shift should have been, uh, when, and this is what you see, you know, this is where you see any place the church is highly persecuted. It has to pivot towards the priesthood, priesthood of believers out of necessity, uh, which is, is good. And because the professional clergy gets, you know, gets, uh, either arrested or, or killed, um, I, I, was hoping that the pandemic would have revealed that the priest, the priests don't aren't as necessary for our uh, our walk in Christ. We we have what we need for life and godliness together, and so helping to train and galvanize people in smaller communities, um, I think would have been the. Now some did do that. I think there is some awakening around that because I'm. I'm just now starting to have those conversations with megachurch pastors who are starting to evaluate, you know, the habit they've been building of just creating so much content and getting, trying to get everybody to come back to the building is, uh, did we miss something here? So I think that's what should have happened. If, this, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, st- I, I still maybe, maybe a bit more on what is that? practically look like so it's sure covid's hit nobody's showing yeah. up 
it's Sunday morning. What should the pastor be doing to facilitate that? <laughs> like, what, there, there still is yeah. a pastor who's doing, like, he's not sure. sleeping in or saying, all right, I'm done. <laughs> you guys just get it from, like, he's, what right. is he doing is 50 hours a week during COVID, you know? Um, <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did write a whole book about this. So um, in, the, in, the, in the church, the book, The Church's Movement, which is a really practical okay. kind of guide to this way of being the church. But ultimately, if I can just simplify, is the pastor, the, the pastoral role or even ministry leaders hover around the communication act on Sunday. That's like the primary uh, gravitational pull is the act of preaching and even worship has become a communication act. Like, come see what we've put together. I think that pastors and ministry leaders need to um, deconstruct that dynamic because I think it's exhausting. I don't think it's all that faithful to the to the first early uh, DNA of the Jesus movement. And I also think that congregants, this is what we're seeing, I think congregants are detaching from that because it's actually not bonding. Um, it's a very transactional relationship. So pivoting from that to a discipler who is helping uh, or a community organizer to help uh, the church gather in small ways, in small places for uh, mutual edification, um, liturgical formation, local mission. So a pastor rather than provider is one of coach and discipler so that they can release a decentralized movement. Everything right now, even, and, and I don't just, I don't always want to critique the modern megachurch because, because it's both in the liturgical mainline church and in megachurch, both of them have a come and see approach to whether you're participating in a liturgy or participating in modern worship and preaching, there's still a, we have something here, come and partake. That's a very consumptive relating. And that's, I think that's wreaking havoc right now with why people aren't coming back to both, both of those spaces. Uh, so um, consumption, just to kind of define what I'm going to keep using this language, consumerism is consumerism is, the primary posture that people in places and things exist for my good, and I am the judge about their quality, and based upon that judgment of whether it's quality, I will part I will commit. And so it's this succession of how I relate with people, places, and things. I'm the judge of its quality. Do I like this? Do I not like this? Is this good for me? Is this not good for me? Does this reach my standards? Do I like this style? Do I like this culture? And if I do, then I'll commit. If I don't, then I won't commit. And the moment that I don't like something in that environment, my commitment wanes. I mean, think about it. That's how we relate with TV shows and restaurants and Amazon and products and clothing. I mean, all day long, that's the way that we are relating with everything. So it's really hard to turn this off when we're talking about the local church, because that's the way we're relating with the local church uh, as primarily in a consumptive posture. So pastors need to, to break that codependent relationship. And honestly, as a pastor, I like that relationship <laughs> because I like to produce content and I like, my, my, I like the sound of my own voice and my own sermons. 
And so, uh, <laughs> so when someone wants to, you know, download my sermon, or back then it was actually buy the CDs, I got a, I got an emotional release. It, it felt good. And so, when people say they loved worship that Sunday, there's an emotional return on that. So, I think that it's actually a codependent relationship that needs to be broken around galvanizing people for their own care and mission and development. So do you, th- I mean, and, do you think uh, that that's, so that's, you, a, yeah, go ahead. that's a bit of a, maybe a blind spot, like rec- recognizing the profound consumerism that, that the, the consumeristic society that we're living in, the negative effects of that, and then being, and then being able to analyze our own church structures and rhythms to see how much of our church rhythms are basically feeding into that kind of transactional consumer kind of mentality and how that yeah. could potentially interrupt or stifle one's discipleship journey. I mean, would that be, would that be something, yeah. a takeaway, again, a leader listening to this, like or even a parent or anybody who's in a disciple-ish kind of relationship yeah. to help people yes. to recognize what aspects of their faith, their church rhythms are are play are, are really mirroring our consumeristic society, which hopefully we should yeah. recognize the you know some problems with that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I I tend to think that con- this is just where I'm coming from. I, I think consumerism consumerism is the greatest idol in the West. I think it is the thing that we bow down to and we worship. I think it's our biggest export around the world. You know, any society that um, people want to come to the U.S. because of our, the consumerism that is is here. And so the church is, is to be, in Stanley Howard Ross's words, a countercultural prophetic community. Mm-hmm. And I would start to, to <laughs> planting a church or being the church here in the West, I would say, what's the biggest idol that we're all bowing down to? And and how is the church baptizing that idol in the way that we're being the church? Um, this is this is a tension-filled work. It's not an either-or. It's it's a both-and. And so um, we're never going to get away completely from just partaking, and, you know, and receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that the church has been quite—I mean, you know, leadership one-on-one and church growth one-on-one, and, and even in— I'll just say this, even in the ancient future movement, which is about recovering liturgy, and I went through that uh, 15 years ago, we did have this MO that if we just created a really moving liturgical experience, people are going to want to come to church. And even that is a consumptive approach and a very kind of spectatoritis way of designing the church. So I think we need to interrogate how this is filtered into our the way we follow Jesus, the way we relate with the church. Um, I don't think we need to be afraid of what it reveals. Um, I Just to kind of just go back to something real quick is it's already revealing. And this is what COVID has revealed. Um, people related with their church, a good portion, more stats are coming up, but more people related with their church. I, I just was talking to a couple uh, here at our retreat center a married couple, and they, they said this, they said, we've we've been attending our church for 10 years, and COVID revealed to us how little attachment we actually had to our church. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what COVID is revealing for people. 
is that they have been fans consuming everything that they liked about their church, but COVID broke that it broke something there and exhausted us. And now we're reevaluating. Do I really feel all that attached to the church? Mm. So it's already being revealed. <laughs> I think consumerism is already. Uh, so we, we either, here's the thing. We either break this attachment because it's going to break the backs of pastors, priests, and planters, or people are going to continue to break away from the church. Um, even though we still want to follow Jesus. Yeah. We, I, I think that we're, th- this is um, th- this is my kind of summary of this, this situation is that, you know, 500 years ago, the Reformation was about a reformation of beliefs. Um, I think right now the rumblings that we're just starting to feel, some people think they've been feeling for a long time, but I think COVID is bringing them into the clear, but that there's a new reformation. I think it's a reformation of ecclesiology, how we gather. Hmm. Um, that wasn't addressed in the last Reformation. It wasn't addressed in Christendom. You know, Christendom, uh, you know, it, it, it all stayed intact except the beliefs changed. And so I think we're at that place right now that we need to, you know, we need a new Reformation of how we come together. Uh, can, can you despise the idols of consumerism hmm. and this? Go ahead. Well, you mentioned something, and it's you're kind of coming back to it now, that, that people— I forget the percentage, 30, 40% of people aren't coming back post-COVID. Coming back as in yeah. coming back and attending a church slash church service. Mm. Um, and I wanted to ask, uh, why is that? Um, but I, I think you might be answering that yeah. now. The why, is, it, is the why that not having gone to a church service for a year, ha- they haven't, they've looked and maybe haven't missed, like they're like, I don't feel like I've missed much. Yeah. I, I can, if it's just coming to receive a sermon yeah. and re- and watch, you know, re- like engage in worship, maybe um, I can do, I've been able to do that online mm. um, or maybe I didn't do it online, yeah. but I went fishing and I kind of had a good day and there's n- I don't feel like a major yeah. void in my life that I didn't get to go to a yes. church service, you know, three or four times a month um, is I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> is that, I think well, are the issues are more question. to it than that, or? Well, I I think that there's, you know, the, I think there's two things going on. I think that COVID has revealed that we don't really miss those goods and services. Um, we can get them other places. You know, when I say goods and services, everything that the church provided for us, we can find somewhere else. Um, at our own convenience, on our own timing, laying on our couch, on our bed, <laughs> or couch, and um, I, I, I think the church kind of revealed that we don't miss it that much. I mean, this is—I'm speaking obviously anecdotally here, but um, you know, everyone I talk to is is evaluating how much they really valued that that dynamic. And I think COVID has put, uh, you know, a light on that. I think the second piece is back to, I think we're exhausted. I think um, there's an existential exhaustion settling in. It reminds me of of this. Years years ago, I had this job that was like 75 minutes away from my house. And uh, I, I really wanted the job. I was so excited about the job. And so I was willing to make that drive. 
And but I had to get up at 5 a.m. every morning to make it. And then when I came home, uh, the drive was even longer because of bumper to bumper traffic. Preston, I mean, within four months, I started to ask the question, do I really want this job? Hmm. I'm so tired. Hmm. I hate the drive. I come home. My nerves are shot from and I eventually realized I didn't want the job that bad. You know, something I was so excited about that I thought was just the, the pinnacle of arrival for me really wasn't worth it because of the toll it took on me. And I think that's what's happening with exhaust. That's what exhaustion does to you. You start to evaluate, do I really want to work this hard for Christian community? Do I really want to work this hard to be fed spiritually? Do I really want to work this hard to show up and go through the emotions on Sunday, you might have been excited about it at one point and really excited about the prospects, but I, I do think it's making people evaluate whether it's worth the energy. And yeah. so that's, I mean, that's, I think that's what's going on. I know um, it's, cl- I know it's kind of cliched now, but it, may, it might be revolutionary in some circles, but um, it seems to me that when I look at my own soul, when I, talk to people, when I just look at what I think people are looking for, it is this profound sense of belonging, right? I mean, whatever that yes. looks like, whether yes. it's a, a, a smaller setting and you're engaged in authentic relationships, or maybe a larger setting, but you have some kind of, like, you feel like you come, when you gather, whatever that looks yes. like, you're like, man, I am, I am a piece of this. And if I'm not here, yes. this thing does not look the same. And if that person's not there, there's a, there's a, there's a sadness, you know, like the whole puzzle yes. is not there yes. as a missing piece. Um, it's a family yes. gathering where, you know, your favorite uncle couldn't make it. And you're like, Oh, this, this isn't the same. And then he, he shows up out of nowhere. Hey, I made it back early. And everybody's so excited because he's there. Like it's the, um, I just maybe just, turn a very different direction it's yeah you know no this is good one of the yeah one of the really discouraging thing i think for christians when they have a heart for like the lgbt community it's like oh i want to reach the lgbt community i'm like what what kind of community do you foresee them stepping into because they're stepping out you're you're asking them to step out of a pretty tight community and i know it's got its own issues or whatever but like what are they stepping sure. into? Yeah. Or even I think Francis Chan shared a story about, you know, a gang member getting saved, you know, and, you know, mm. when he's in the gang, yes. it's like his mother's taken care of, his kids are taken care of. If he needs anything at four in the morning, seconds away, people are like, it's just that tight knit and he gets saved and he yes. shows up to church. He's so excited that this is my new kind of gang. And he's like, Oh yes, yes. <laughs> Wait a minute! I just left yeah. a the most like like family like like true community like a piece of me was in, yes. embedded in this community. I don't know for for me. Yes. I, I this is purely anecdotal now. That's good. Like for me, to me that if I don't, I can't. I, I've had a and I, you know I've shared this publicly many times. You know, really hard time just landing at a church. Had a really hard time just. Mm you know, f- finding a church, people are like, what are you looking for? You know, there's no perfect church. And I'm like, well, I'm not, I don't think I'm looking for a perfect church. I just, I want to, the sense of I belong yeah. here. And if I'm not here, I'm missed. And people recognize that. And when other people are here, I yes. recognize that. And 
I don't think that, yeah. I, that's not a perfect church at all. Like, I just want to, I just want to, the, yeah. the profound sense of belonging. Is that oversimplified? Yeah. Is that, I mean, is there more to it than that? Is that, uh, I don't know. I feel like in my circles, we talk about belonging all, a lot. So I, I feel like I'm kicking a dead horse, but sure. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that belonging is at the center of the early magnetism of the Jesus movement of the early church. Um, in contrast, at that point, you had the Jewish synagogue, and then you had Greek mystery cults mm-hmm. who were all around rituals, and, and you had to do this to participate. And then you have this Jesus community that stripped all of that away. I like to call it minimalism. They embraced a minimalism, and minimalism, actually, I mean, that term is 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 only about 40 years old now, but minimalism was a movement in art and in music to kind of simplify and pare things down in order to make space for the most beautiful things. Mm. And the church at this point has just embraced excess and so much ritual and so many cultural idiosyncrasies that there's not enough, we haven't, we, we haven't made space for the potent, centering of belonging to each other in Christ. And I know that that, you know, every pastor would say, no, that's what we're about. We're about belonging community. But you you can't say that and still uh, pad everything with resources. You, 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 you can't say you're practicing minimalism in art and just, you know, glut up the canvas with everything you've got. And I something's got to go. Something has to give to make space for belonging and tethering to one another. And I think that that hasn't happened. And that's why people's relationship with the church is more fan than family Hmm. is because belonging wasn't the primary attachment. Hmm. Um, So, uh, you know, I'm hoping that um, community kind of moves out of being a fad or a buzzword we put on our mission statements and starts to make us pare down and embrace, you know, a missional minimalism, uh, a simplicity so that our, our life together, using Bonhoeffer's language, uh, uh, under uh, the leadership of Christ in the world becomes like the primary beauty that like, that's, that's all we need. <laughs> That's all we need to be together. Mm-hmm. So when we have discussions on race or discussions on pandemic stuff, I don't split and leave you that quickly because I'm more family than fan, right? And this is what's happened because of the political stuff that's happening so much. We're not loyal to one another in those conversations because uh, we have to, we, you know, we're choosing affinity over family. And so... I think that that's. I think the foundations are really, really thin um, for belonging. I don't. Know if, I don't know if that's. No. That's, so I, I'm with you, Preston, on that. What are some things a church can do? Let's let's just have let's just pick a, a fictitious church, <laughs> like a 500 size, maybe two services. Sure. You know, just your kind of bigger than average, but you know, not mega church church. Sure. Um, and I, in yeah, just to acknowledge as, as you've done, and and I think when we're kind of unpacking and analyzing and critiquing ecclesiological structures, I, I just want to acknowledge. Sure. I mean, most pastors that I know, at least, are like, dude, hundred oh, yeah. percent. 
but I got a sermon to prepare. I got yeah. two people to bury next week. Yeah. A marriage just blew up, and I don't know if we're going to make budget because our biggest giver just left because I, I preached that. on race, and he didn't like what I, you know. Yes. Um, and this is yes. all I've known. And so I don't even have time or space to kind of reimagine what my yes. ecclesiology is going to look like when it could potentially just destroy the church, and I've got to fire four people or, like, you know. So I, I right acknowledging that, that I yeah. think the heart of most pastors is I want to see yes. people grow. I want to see them belong. I want to see them, yes. you know, even if I want to see them come to church, not just because it's a good worship service, but because they are engaging people. So how, what, what are some, again, real practical things that you would recommend, maybe not mandate, but say, Hey, here's some ideas for a church mm-hmm. that is in that kind of rhythm of doing what they've done for 25 years um, but yes. are willing to yes. like say, Hey, all right, what are some things we could do differently just practically to help people cultivate a more genuine yeah. discipleship and sense of belonging? Yeah. I hope I worded all you know, that right. Two, yeah. <laughs> that's good. I, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Um, you know, I come at this with a little bit of trembling because I, I was and am that pastor who felt <laughs> like I'm doing everything that I can do. Um, and now you're just asking me to do more. Yeah. And yeah. that can feel like shame and, and guilt, right? Um, I, I, I think that there's, there's two approaches to this. There's the, uh, there's the approach of like uh, burning it all down. <laughs> just uh, <laughs> saying, you know, we're, we're canceling this, we're canceling that, we're done with this, we're done with that. You know, this is the new structure. Um, and I know that some pastors, that's they're so fed up uh, and, and in their prophetic desire to see God do something new. That's what they want to do. They just yeah. want to they want to burn it all up. Um, I think that that would be a mistake. I, I, I think the best way to start the best place to start um, first, read my book, Church as Movement. <laughs> Church, say it again. Church as Movement. Um, Church as Movement. Yeah, church as a movement. Okay. I, that, I'm sorry about the selfish, you know, self promotion. Dude, no, 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 no. Um, I, I, I but it, it, like I'm just, a huge, I'm a huge a, fan of putting good resources in front of people. So no, go, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the book was written for this very purpose. I mean, but the, the, this, the best place to start actually is to start the way Jesus started and to start small. You know, Jesus could have arrived at uh, a Greek. Colosseum and announced his divinity and said the kingdom of God is at hand and created a an unbelievable, undeniable moment that something supernatural is happening. And instead of doing that, he just chose a small ragamuffin crew of disciples to take on mission, uh, live into community with each other, and then teach them how to commune with the Father. So any pastors who's feeling this, I would say, why not? Why don't we just start a small discipleship band of people in a local neighborhood, five to eight people, and orient around um, communion with God, community with each other, and commission into our neighborhood. And do that out on the edge um, as a renewing work. Do that out on the edge of the empire, out on the edge of our programs. Don't promote it. Don't preach it from the pulpit. Um, don't put it on a pamphlet in a program. Um, you don't have to put it on your website. Just you need to practice this. We need to embody this. We need to work. 
we need to experience the bumps and bruises of living with other people on mission in a, in, in, in a, with minimalism, without needing an excess of resources to do it. That's where I would start. Um, I think that that's probably the most prolific and renewing force to the larger church is when we have prototypes. Everybody's talking about it. Very few people are doing it. And uh, this is what we need people to, to see a living prototype mm-hmm. of uh, this, this smallness that is actually um, sharing the way of Jesus in, in a local space. So I, li- I don't know if that helps. No, it does. And I like your emphasis on, on not overnight changes or just yeah. drastic things that this could be a very slow kind of process. I mean, quick changes usually yes. last quickly, <laughs> like, you know, yes. but I, I just, as you're talking, I was thinking, what if, um, just thinking out loud. So, uh, but yeah, what if a pastor got his elders or maybe they're not even officially elders, but just a few leaders together, five, eight, ten. And just shared mm-hmm. his heart saying, hey, look, I know we're doing this church industrial complex thing and all this sure. stuff, but I just really want to, we're living in this post-COVID world. The internet's been around for a while. There's all kinds of just new issues presenting us. And yet we're using the yes. same ecclesiological structures we did before the internet was invented. Um, I just, mm-hmm. I want to, can we spend a year? We're going to get yes. together, read some books, pray, talk, discuss. Yes. And just kind of just slowly... I just need to start thinking out yes. loud about what this church could look like in the in the near future in a way that's going to yes. better deepen discipleship. Um, yes, I don't know, like that. And I've that's often good. been. I don't. I don't. This. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like so much. I don't know. Again, thinking out loud. Um, a lot of what is stifling people's discipleship it, it does have to do with cultural issues. Let me just throw a few out. Um, mm. Sexuality, gender, politics, yes. race, yes. social media. Is there anybody right. who would say, say, no, 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 nope, nope. My discipleship basically is unrelated to any of those issues. Like probably <laughs> a small, you know, and, and yet, You're right. I don't know, like, like could churches have more open forums and discussions yes. about these issues and help Yes. people engage it. Not, not just a sermon, I, not against a monological sermon yeah. on sexuality. I, I've done them. I continue to do them. But sure. what if you had an ongoing Sunday evening, two hour where the people can like ask questions and it's a discussion, yeah. help people engage these really yes. tough issues that at the end of the day, they, they might, they might have questions about the ending of Mark 16 and whether it was in the original manuscript or they might, what, really want to know, yes. be confident that Paul wrote First Timothy, and there, there might yes. be some traditional issues, you know. That, but I think that there's, yeah, I don't know. I don't, in the age of the internet, it's, it's a lot of these cultural things that do seem to be at the front and center of people's minds when they wake up every morning. I don't know. And this is the world yeah. I live in, so I don't want to project my world on everybody else. But no, like, that's good. I don't know. I, yeah, I do think there's. I do think we've uh, there's not enough space. Well. Partly is partly what we're facing is like the the, the tyranny of speed yeah. that the church feels to become relevant and to produce. That eliminates space for conversation. 
And so most people, when most churches approach discipleship, they pro, they they approach it as a microwave rather than a slow cooker. Yeah, that's good. They want to they want to put together a free class on sexuality, and when everything's done, boom, you know everybody's on the same page, or at least they know where the church stands. We we need to develop these slow, long development process where conversation, learning, conversation, reflection. Um, is unhurried and is mm. safe. And so most people have so many questions about what's happening politically and with uh, sociologically and with sexuality, but there's not enough space to talk about it and it's not very safe to talk about it at church because you either get on board with the class or you, or you don't take the class. And so yeah. I think that a church that wanted to develop people would mark out like a slow-cooked discipleship space. And when I say discipleship, it's not just one way. You know, it's Jesus was it was highly midrash interactive, mm-hmm. um, and so that is a you know that's a that's a develop that's a divine experiment to to give people space to explore mm-hmm. with the guidance of careful shepherds. Yeah, that's um, good. And even to, yeah. even helping people to live unhurried lives, right? Because that, that's a great point you brought up. I mean, if yeah. people are living unhealthy hurried lives than to say, hey, we're going to open up this class on Wednesday evening or whatever. Like, dude, I don't got space for that. It sounds great. I would love I guess, to, but yeah. I just can't. Yeah. And I, I'm, yeah. this is my own. I'm, I'm, I've got four teenagers right now. We're, we're in the thick of, we are in the thick of potentially sure. living that kind of life. We try our, I would say pretty mm. well to war against the kind of American yes. dream and rhythm and sports every second of every day and all that. But yes. it's still very... <laughs> Even for someone who's somewhat aware of that, yeah. it's still very, yeah, it's right. tough. So, so h- helping disciple people into um, the ruthless elimination yeah. of hurry, to quote a mutual friend's book. Yes, that's good. <laughs> love it, love it. I don't know. You know, Preston, I, you know, anytime you offer these um, possible ways for the church to begin a corrective or, you know, to embrace whatever God's doing – they just add it into the mix of what they're already doing. And, mm. you know, to, what, if you're going to start something, you got to stop something. So oh, that's good. you're going to have to clear out space for this. Um, it can't just be added on to your small group ministry, your Sunday school in the morning, pre-sermons. Something's got to go in order to make this is, again, minimalism. You've got to create space for something to breathe. Um, so, um mm. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't want a pastor to hear this and be like, oh, man, i got to start another Friday night meeting. Um, <laughs> you know, because in some sense, your medium is your message. So now you're just endorsing the same problem that you're yeah. teaching against, right? It's like, yeah, totally. So. I just had a great conversation with a couple of pastor friends of mine. Um, well, they, they don't care if I – it'll shout out to Evan Wickham and Matt Larson down in uh, Southern California. And they mm. both were expressing this um, – well, so so my buddy Matt, um, he, he church planner, um, planted a church over ten years ago. And now it's you know established church. They, they've planted, reproduced probably a total of I don't know maybe ten or fifteen churches that like they reprodu- reproduce a church and that church reproduces and it's a it's it's fantastic. Um, and he has a his dad is like a retired pastor, but doesn't believe in retirement for ministry. So the dude like travels the world teaching pastors in remote areas, and then also when he's not traveling, doing like kind of like 
teaching overseas, he's like just pouring into guys and uh he's like pouring into like mm. 10 or 15 guys, you know. I'm like, "Man, how Okay, he's a retired pastor. He's got all this knowledge and wisdom and and like that's golden, but that's that's pretty unique. But what mm. what like what would it look like? This this is more my buddy Matt sharing his heart. Like, how can we help empower the older people to pour into the youngers? You know, um, sure. And this is where Evan was. Evan's got yeah. a really young church. He's like, man, I would give anything to have a few seasoned just Christians mm. who are intentional with yes. just walking one on one or one on three or one on five yes. or something. And I know this is. Yeah, there's nothing new in what I'm saying here, but I mean, I don't know if that was more of a you. higher yep. priority. Like, how can pa- church leaders really empower, equip the the priesthood of all believers, which you brought up earlier? Like, but but more specifically, the yes, older pouring into the younger, more mature pouring into yes. less mature. Um, I don't know. Is yeah. that? I'm sure it's happening, but yeah. Well, it's it's certainly happening, but I think it's it's kind of it's become secondary and peripheral to most churches um so to me it's 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 about you know uh a re-emphasis and a decluttering uh, in order to make space for that discipleship um relationship uh and and that's this and this is not because i this is not because it's a, a sexy fad or because this is where the publishing industry is right it, this is what jesus this is how jesus did it yeah. <laughs> so um, Jesus had the ability to create a mass movement, and he was given that temptation by the, by Satan multiple times, three times in the desert. We can fast track this this thing, and Jesus resisted that for something super small, a seedling of discipleship. And so the church has to come to terms. That I think that's the center of the gospel is not just the truth of God. God's grace, but also the way God embodied uh, bringing about the kingdom of God. So that's also part of the gospel. It's not just a message. It's also our, the mode that we operate in. So I I think that that has to be brought back into the center of the room. And and if you know, I know I know the fear, Preston. I know that the the like the guttural instinct is if we do that, nobody's going to want to come. Do you think who, that's do you think that that's part- a that's a I was going to bring this up earlier. I'm glad you brought it back up. Do you think that that is a driving motivation to bring and keep people and do you think that that creates a lot of unhealthy ecclesiological patterns? Totally. I think fear I think fear is at the center of our decisions around ecclesiology. Fear about being irrelevant, fear about numbers, fear about um, what will I, you know, you said earlier, what am I going to do with my job as a pastor? You know, I mean, I think fear is at the center of why we can't have this conversation. Um, so, yeah. Which I get, I mean, I, it, I get, if I knew that it, I was going to make a ministry decision that could have major financial ramifications on me, my family, my yes. kid, whatever like that, I could, I could, as much as I'm like, no, you know, do the right thing. You know when that's when it's you. When, totally. when, what I love about you, Dan, is you, <laughs> you're not speaking theoretically. You know you you you've been you've been there, <laughs> done that. This ain't your first rodeo. You've been in various different ministry <laughs> contexts and have made sure. tough decisions that have had yeah. ramifications. But um, so yeah, I yeah. I, hmm, 
I get that. I just wonder. Yeah. I just wonder though. Like, I just hmm. wonder if there's there is a simmering hunger for the very yes. kinds of things that we're talking about that I, I I just I mean it depends on the congregation, but I just yeah. wonder if you would actually end up ironically if you cared less about drawing people, you might end up drawing more people. I'll never forget church here in town. Um, mm. I, th- I think they got this, this, uh, yeah. uh, the whole serve Sunday thing. I think, I think Brandon Hatmaker first started doing that, you know, every six weeks or every four weeks, there's no church service. They just go out and serve yeah. in the community. Like that's, and he, you know, we're not canceling church. We're being the church. It's not, we're not, you know, and yes. uh, a buddy of mine, started doing that here in town and he would always be shocked as like he's like that was always our biggest turnout every six weeks we don't do a church service we go out and serve huh. and there's more unbelievers that show up to like go serve a needy person go help muslims or whatever in this neighborhood like pff, i'm all about that it's always the biggest attendance and usually the most non-believers yes. would show up <laughs> so because you would think like yes. gosh if i cancel yeah. church service like people are gonna be so upset no one's gonna show up people are gonna start not coming when we do have church service and I don't know. I just wonder if you started doing things yes. that were a little more outside the box, unpredictable, authentic, and fostering belonging, you might actually. Yes. But that still can't be your motivation. Like I'm going to be raw and, and you know, different because so that I yeah. get an audience or I don't know. Yeah. I, I do think Preston, this is what, what I think back to our kind of original uh, thing we were kicking out on earlier was co- I think COVID has revealed or um, maybe maybe tuned us in to a deeper hunger, like a like a tectonic groaning um, that we 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 and this I, you get a pastor or a planter in a space you know behind a closed door and they can be honest they're often hungry for something different yeah. They're they're a bit tired. They're exhausted. They're more than a bit tired. I mean, that's why the Caneo Center was started because we're exhausted. I mean, we're exhausted from uh, you know the rat race and and the and kind of this tyranny of the industrial complex. Um, but they, I think the hunger is there. I think we're becoming more attuned to that hunger. Um, I I think that the the next precipice is to address. Um, the fear of letting go. Um, mm. You can't experience resurrection. You can't experience renewal. And I know this on a personal level. Anything God, anything new God wanted to birth in my life required kenosis, required mm. some kind of self-emptying. I had there was something I was attached to that I was you know was glued to that I thought was a part of my identity, vocationally was part of my security financially was a part of my relational. Uh, belong. I, God said, you have got to let go if you want if you want me to do a new work um, in your soul. And so I think that's the same, mm. you know, on a church structural system, ecclesiological level. Yeah. Um, something's got to die in order for new life to yeah to make way. So man, that's a good word. Well, dude, we should wrap this up, man. There's something I. I just looked at the time, <laughs> yes. and I'm like, man, there's so many. We could just keep talking for hours, but um, let's let let's let people sure, uh, yeah. uh, simmer and digest some of the convoluted <laughs> open air uh, <laughs> thoughts that you and I have been bantering around. But I, I just to repeat what I just said earlier. Like, I, what I love about you, Dan, is uh, see a lot of things I'd say when it comes to, like church are really theoretical. I mean, I've been in church my whole life. I've been a leader, but 
I haven't mm. been like a full-time pastor for a number of years and done it. So when I say, hey, we should do this, we should do that, you may, maybe try this. It's like, well, yeah, it's nice for you to sit in your basement on your podcast and throw out these ideas and then go, you know, <laughs> you don't have to reap the... So, and I totally get that. I totally get that. Um, but what I love is um, I don't think I'm totally crazy because y- you and I, I think, are on very similar mm. pages. And yet you've done, you've been in the grind for so mm-hmm. long and have coached other pastors. So... Anyway, I just I love I think mm. you bring a, a level of authority and legitimacy to um, mm. your ideas because you're you're not you're speaking out of experience. So yeah. So thank you, Dan, for being that. alive, for thank existing, you. and for coming on the show. <laughs> mm. Thank you. That I'll I'll carry with, with, that with me today. I appreciate that. Yeah. You you've mentioned a couple books. So um, uh, Church as Movement and then Love Over Fear, and you've written. Have you written a couple others or? I'm blanking on. Uh, I wrote talking. a book called Subter- I, I wrote a book called Subterranean uh, almost ten years ago, and That's right. I've got a little ebook out called Dialog- you know Dialogical Preaching, oh. uh, which is how to include dialogue in your preaching. So cool. Um, I got a, I got a lot of stuff floating out there. And where can people find you? Uh, v. Uh, you have your website, Dan Dan White Jr. Uh, yep, the the DanWhiteJr.com, uh, and um, my primary planting work is with the V3 movement. Um, Great, great, a great collection of men and women who are doing really cool things in the neighborhood. And then the Kineo Center, uh, the K-I-N-E-O Center.com, which is a uh, a recent and new work for my wife and I and a team um, around uh, healing and renewal for wounded and weary leaders. So if that's you, maybe that's a good space to start. Yeah, maybe maybe you'll see me soon <laughs> <laughs> love, I'd love to have you Preston we'd love to host you hey Dan thanks so much for being on appreciate it take care yes peace friend